This episode of Return to Tradition was brought to you by the Saint Maker Catholic Life Planner Toolkit, a resource using Catholic wisdom and modern science to help you achieve that sanctity God is calling you to. Thousands of Catholics are on the Saint Maker journey, and you can join them with a 90-day risk-free trial offer backed with a 100% refund guarantee. Go to www.thesaintmaker.com forward slash return to tradition to learn more and use promo code return to tradition to save 10%. Normally on a Saturday, I wouldn't give you two educational videos in a day, but I came across this and it's perfect for October, the month of the Holy Rosary. As a Marian month, Our Lady should be on our mind and her role in salvation history. And the thing about this is this month, I haven't really covered the Blessed Virgin much, except for in a sort of a roundabout way, Malachi Martin's message on the third secret of Fatima and whether he leaked the third secret of Fatima or not. That's about all I've done. Then I came across this, though. This is an address given by the late Cardinal Ottaviani, the same Cardinal Ottaviani who gave us the firm declaration in defense of the sacred liturgy of the church that the new mass, as promulgated by Paul VI, was, uh, well, heretical in the famous Ottavianian uh, intervention that himself, Archbishop Lefebvre in the late 1960s, and a few other archbishops signed and publicly threatened to publicly de- denounce Paul VI as a heretic if he did not make changes to the new mass. If you're not familiar with that document, I can make sure to link it in the comments. Just uh, remind me in case I forget. But here he is talking about the role of Mary in the history of the church in smashing heresies because she has had a consistent role in the destruction of heresies throughout the history of the church. And I think for obvious reasons, this is a relevant message for our time. So with that having been said, Cardinal Ottaviani and the smashing of heresies under the heel of Mary. The evangelist John concludes the account of the miracle at Cana with this powerful expression. His disciples believed in him. It was not therefore at the moment of their calling, But it was at that moment that they began to believe their faith was born at Cana. Let me emphasize one point in particular. To the virgin who insisted, did not tire of insisting. Our Lord justified his refusal with a divine decree, a provision of divine providence. My hour has not yet come. The hour set by the father for the first prodigy of his son to kindle faith in the hearts of the disciples, to inaugurate in the light of the sun the new era of the new kingdom and the new epoch, the epoch, if one may say so, of the eternal in time, of the divine and the human, has not yet come. Until now, this new period of history had been opened only in secrecy and intimacy when the word became flesh. It was through Mary, then, that the first triumphs of faith were obtained, that the faith by which man becomes a child of God. There was thus an hour set by the eternal counsel, but God wanted this hour to be anticipated by Mary's intervention. This influence of Mary's prayer on the divine almighty does not surprise us, brethren. Did not her Jesus place in the depth of humility the summit of all possible greatness for the human creature? These considerations prove it. It is no accident that Mary, who gave Jesus to men, was present at Cana. And with what a presence. It is no accident that she was present on the day of Pentecost. This humble woman, the humblest of all women, gave us Jesus and continues to give him to us throughout history. For she is, in a sense, the image, 
the type and the model of the church, also a virgin and mother, who begets Jesus in the hearts of men. In the history of the church, we can find what happened in the earthly life of Jesus. Mary has been sensitively, visibly present in the most anguished and darkest hours of faith, just as she has always been the brightest dawn of the days of great triumphs. Mary does not cease to be present and active in this continuous Pentecost, which is the spiritual government of souls in the work of the magisterium. I can assure you, dear brethren, that nowhere is Mary more present than in Rome, in, the, in this august Rome, which puts her glory at the humble service of the whole universe, in this Rome which lives for all her human brothers and sisters and knows no other mission, no other salvation than that of being founded for others. My whole life from the earliest hours of my priesthood has been spent in the humble service of the central and universal government of the church. I dare to testify here that Our Lady's presence gives us the certainty of working in the church and for the church with Christ Jesus. Because of this presence of Mary throughout the centuries, the victories, the laurels, the glory of the triumphs obtained by the church, Rome has often attributed them to Mary her omnipotent intercession, terrible as an army arrayed in battle. Along with Rome, the whole church was pleased to adorn with precious stones the crown contemplated by St. John on her forehead, on her head a crown of stars. Let me recall as from above without insisting more than necessary some of these victorious interventions of Mary in the life of the church. I appeal to Christian souls who are not ignorant of the steps taken by the truth in its march through the world. Steps that were so many stations of a painful way of the cross. They know how Jesus spent his earthly life. They are aware of his life in the secret of their hearts. They have learned how he lived through the centuries in his church. The pagan world. How could the pagan world, corrupt by idolatry and cruelty, have admitted chastity, purity, virginity? Think, my friends, what weighed Mary's virginal motherhood had in a matter of such importance. On the part of paganism for which the cross of Christ was foolishness, this virginal motherhood was an object of scornful ridicule. In the struggle against Christianity, the hatred of the pagans associated Mary with Jesus in their attacks. Early apologists, on the other hand, associated the splendor of Mary's grace with the splendor of Jesus' divinity. The first breakthroughs of Christian truth were achieved through the radiance of these two luminous names. Thus, Jesus manifested Mary, and Mary manifested Jesus. Early Jewish literature of Christianity was involved in this battle. Mary was the object of hateful slander. The mother was attacked to get at the son. On the other hand, some Gnostics, while retaining the title, quote-unquote, son of Mary, for Jesus, removed all importance from redemption, reducing the Incarnation to nothing or almost nothing. All that remains of the Divine Maternity is a vain simulacrum. On this point, Marcion will have a successor in Nestorius, who will draw all the consequences from his principles. In the midst of so much strife, Mary's intervention in defense of the Church finds her first witness and her first cantor in the Disciple of Love, in the one who writes in his Gospel. The Disciple took her into his house. See the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 27. This apostle, soaring over the divine heights like a mighty eagle, recorded in his books the last words of written revelation. 
He is also the one who tells us about Mary's first appearance after her assumption and coronation into heaven. Yes, the first apparition of Our Lady was attested and described by this apostle, who first was able to call Mary his mother because of a benevolent investiture of Jesus addressed to all of us in his person. In this vision, how did the apostle, who was loved by Jesus and therefore also by Mary, see the Virgin? He had lived near her for days and days, hours and hours, until her last moment. He knew her face as one knows the face of one's mother. Let us listen to his inspired words. A great wonder appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, her head crowned with twelve stars. See Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. The vision ends with a symbolic description of the marvelous victory over the infernal dragon achieved by the church, represented by Mary. John must have explained this vision to his disciple Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna. Irenaeus, a native of Smyrna, received this teaching from Polycarp himself. It is not surprising, then, that he and his contemporary Justin were the first doctors to teach about the victorious mission of the new Eve in the Church of Christ. Indeed, the old Eve, deceived by the prevaricating angel, was already contrasted with the new Eve, welcomed by the angel of Annunciation, victorious over the underworld and dispenser of salvation for the gift of her divine son. This consoling teaching was then passed on from Polycarp to Irenaeus, who, after his visit to the apostles and disciples in Asia, took this Marian message, inspiring confidence, pledge of salvation, and promise of victory to lions for all of France and then the whole world. Eve, Irenaeus writes, seduced by the word of the angel, abandoned God and was unfaithful to his command. Mary accepted the word of the angel and received God into herself. The former disobeys God, the latter obeys. The human race, lost by a virgin, was saved by a virgin. This message echoes what Justin had proclaimed in Rome. God's faithful gathered it in the secret of the catacombs. It was there that for the first time an image of Mary, associated with her divine son, was proposed to the worship of Christians. How many martyrs had to look confidently at this image before they went to the Colosseum to win their glorious crown? This fresco still exists today to witness to our time and future centuries the faith and trust in Mary of these heroes of the first Christian generations. Their blood was the seed of victory for the Christians of the future, who were to prevail over the persecutors and heretics. It was in this spirit that the Council of Ephesus was prepared, that solemn popular jubilation that, in a sea of bright torches, celebrated the triumph of truth in the name of Mary, Mother of God. At Ephesus, in the name of Mary and her divine motherhood, a most pernicious heresy was crushed in the time of the barbarians. Soon after the time of violence, they had been embodied in the barbarians, took the true church through long centuries of painful sadness. It is a harsh continuation of the Iron Ages. Everything is cut down. Everything is demolished. Everything is dark and gloomy. Yet Christian Rome has conquered her pagan conquerors. The victory of Athens over her Roman conqueror was celebrated. Greece, conquered by the Romans, conquered the savage victor, and the art she brought to Agrestic Latium. How much more beautiful and profitable for the universe was the victory of Christian Rome over the barbarians, her conquerors, What was Mary's role in these events? Look at art, poetry, theology, and liturgy. They all testify to Mary's influence on this glorious victory of Christian light 
over the darkness of those times. In fact, one of the most powerful factors in this triumph of the spirit over brute force was undoubtedly the sweet attraction that the Blessed Virgin exerted on these rude people with the radiance of her grace and virtues, with her maternal tenderness and her enchanting superhuman beauty. For these barbarians who considered women less than human, Mary's spiritual and supernatural greatness was like a radiant light strong enough to illuminate such deep darkness. The mighty virtue of Christ's grace, obtained through Mary's intercession and spread by her sweet attraction, must have poured abundantly over the furrows traced by the barbarian invasions. And great must have been the gratitude of the peoples, for as soon as Europe began to lay the foundations of the Christian order, those magnificent temples sprang up everywhere, destined to sing the glories of Mary for centuries to come. These people who had destroyed the pagan temple of Minerva in Rome built, rebuilt it with their own hands to consecrate it to Mary, Queen of Martyrs. Devotion to Mary ennobled those neophytes, and the warlike fury of these rough and strong peoples was transformed by the Crusades into the quest for Christianity's victory over those other invading armies. At the site of Jerusalem, the victorious crusaders sing the Salve Regina. At this moment, Mary gives the church a great victory through the action of a heroic shepherd, her faithful servant, St. Gregory VII. To this great pope is destined the glory of having freed the church from the bonds by which it had been gradually taken captive. He was not content with laying on the divine foundations of the church the mighty architecture of law. He also wrenched the bride of Christ from the, from the embrace of Caesar. He restored the clergy to purity and poverty. He enjoined on the monks loyalty to Rome. He reminded the princely men that since they were Christians like other men, they had to be even more so. He organized Rome's first network of representatives to protect the religious independence of the faithful, the clergy, and the church in the various countries. His letters show him worthy of both Caesar and Augustine. Above all, they reveal his devotion to Mary. Historians show him kneeling before the most popular Roman images of the Blessed Virgin, praying as a humble devotee. In the name of Mary and in the name of the Roman Church, this admirable genius opened the second millennium of Christian history, the Middle Ages. The heresies of the New Times no longer had as their object the dogma of the Trinity. It was not the time of the Great Schisms. But the new errors concerned the mystical life of, or ecclesiastical life. These were the heresies, full of lividity, that preluded the Protestantism and found in it their culmination. Against them, new devotions emerged, not in substance, but in tone. First in the 12th century, the devotion uh, to the humanity of Christ. Then in the 13th, the great devotion to the Eucharist. And finally, in the 14th, to the Passion of the Lord. Devotions that, all three, gave new luster to Marian devotion. The Stabat Mater belongs to the latter period. In the name of Mary, great cathedrals were built, great initiatives were born. In the name of Mary, and under her patronage, several religious orders sprang up that formed the new spiritual armies of the church against heresies and for Christian pacification. At the top of Dante's Divine Comedy, and on the title page of Petrarch's Cantos, The Glory of Mary Shines, as well as on the cathedrals of Italy, Spain, England, and Germany. The period of great Marian cathedrals also began in France. 
Notre Dame de Paris and Notre Dame de Chartres and many others. Shrines that have survived over the centuries as symbols of inner peace and centers of spiritual rest amid the struggles and problems of life. Even today, those who seek to know the most beautiful youth of France meet her on pilgrimages on the road from Paris to Chartres. Thanks to Mary's actions, anarchist movements that advocated poverty and incited revolt did not undermine church discipline. The new nationalism succeeded in dominating much of the clergy and provoking the Great Western Schism. They could not overwhelm Rome. They could divide Christians and wrest much of Germany and England from the church, but they could not deprive it of the strength and honor of unity. Catholics remained faithful to the church by remaining faithful to Mary, their mother, for it was she who kept her children devoted to their mother in the 16th century. It is a constant law. Where devotion to the mother was preserved, the son remained present with her, and her vicar continued to be the guarantor of the unity of the mystical body. Protestantism makes no more room for Mary, but at the same time, by suppressing the altar of the mother, it suppresses the altar of her divine son. By refusing obedience to the vicar of Christ, Protestants have scattered, like sheep who no longer hear the voice of the shepherd. In vain they try to find unity outside of Mary, Jesus' presence in the Eucharist, and the Pope. Protestantism, having denied the Church and Mary, was condemned by the decrees of the Council of Trent. The Immaculata was no stranger to the success of this great council, to which it owes the first authentic testimony given by the Church of its exemption from Adam's sin, transmitted by generations to its descendants. The Turks were constantly renewing their attempts to invade Europe. The Battle of Lepanto, the apotheosis and victory of the Rosary was fought against them. It was a success of the First Marian Congress. This name was given to those masses of fighters who, grouped on their ships, praised Mary and invoked her through the rosary before the supreme test. These triumphs of Mary would be repeated in Budapest and Vienna during the 17th century. In the 18th and 19th centuries. In more recent times, we have not experienced times of schism as from the 5th century to the year 1000, nor of heresy as from the year 1000 to the 16th century. But times of public unbelief, such as the world had not known since the coming of Christ Jesus. This unbelief has brought back to our countries a neo-paganism, all the more serious because it is a rejection of the faith by apostates and renegades. Alas, the enemy who made his supreme effort in Budapest and was defeated thanks to Mary has been succeeded by a completely different enemy. His empire surpasses all empires that have ever existed. His strength equals his ferocity. His power to harm equals his ability to resist. Should we therefore despair of him whom we invoke under the title, Help of Christians? Did the church despair when on the altar of Our Lady, in the place dedicated to the invincible queen of heaven and earth, the ridiculous quote-unquote goddess of reason was raised? No. Christians entrusted themselves to the virgin of perpetual help and invoked her. Pius VII entrusted himself to her and sealed his trust with a solemn vow in Savona. The whole church invoked her, and the voice of the Bride of Christ reached her ears. Mary came down from heaven to help her. In Paris, Catherine Labour received from the hands of the Virgin the Pledge of Abundant Graces, ready to descend to earth. In Lourdes, Bernadette Subaru contemplates the Immaculata. At her command, she discovers the spring, a symbol of graces and miracles, that are triumphant manifestations of her power, not only over physical evil, but even more over the unbelief, skepticism, and pride of the wise men of earth 
infatuated with their vain science. Mary's presence in our time. Mary is also present in the church today. She is present there as she was present at the wedding at Cana. With loud cries, the pontiff called her with the proclamation of the dogma of the Assumption. With loud cries, the faithful call her with her countless devotions. Finally, theologians invoke her through the renewal of Marian theology, which has never been equaled, not even in the 17th century. Throughout the second Christian millennium, apparitions of the Blessed Virgin have populated Catholic lands with a myriad of Marian shrines, each as miraculous and frequented as the next. But in no age have these apparitions been as splendid as they are today. This Lord's is a capital of prayer and grace. Without a doubt, Our Lady is present in our midst. We have invited her to take place among us, to defend us from the enemies of Christian civilization. Modern society is gripped by a frightening fear of renewal. Modern society is gripped by a frightening fever of renewal. It is also haunted by men who want to take advantage of our suffering to impose their whims on us, to enforce the tyranny of their vices, to build among us the den of their debauchery and robbery. Evil takes on immense proportions and assumes an apocalyptic character. Never before has humanity known such danger. Any hour now we may lose not only our lives but also civilization and all hope. The present may slip away with the future. We risk not only losing our wealth but ruining the very foundation of society's life. And the atomic bomb is capable of creating a desert less atrocious than that produced by the dominant doctrine in a godless society. There is a spiritual Sahara far worse than the African Sahara. The new weapons may crush our bodies, but the new doctrines seek to crush our minds, especially as the aberrations of profane and God-denying science join our side with strange and dangerous errant ways. Today, as in the days of the great heresies, there is a science of, ha of half-saviors who use doctrine to flatter their own vanity, without feeling the necessary reverential awe for the wisdom of holy things. I am talking about the so-called science of the half-saviors, for true scholars, great scholars, have rarely opposed the supreme magisterium of the church. This easy science of saving means has tried to reduce eternity to time, the supernatural to nature, grace to human effort, and God to man. If Mary does not return to us, how can we not fear the consequences of so many errors and horrors? What will become of us? From whom can we hope for salvation? Certainly not from human powers. Daily experience shows all too clearly the truth of the divine warning. Do not put your hope in your rulers who are incapable of procuring salvation. Their incapacity is clearly manifested. Forty years ago, a red stain of blood spilled by tyranny began to burden men and their minds, individuals, and nations with the most intolerable oppression. Yet, despite the efforts of statesmen to curb it, it has never stopped growing and now threatens all that remains of human freedom and dignity throughout the world. The Lord himself seems to be deaf to our voice. He seems to be yielding to the sleep that caused the prophet's prayer. Arise, Lord, why do you sleep? And that caused the disciples in the stormy boat to cry out in despair. And the Lord also seems to say to us, My hour has not yet come. See the Gospel of John, chapter four, chapter two, verse four. But the Immaculata, the author, the mother of God, the image and protector of the church, showed us at Cana that she knew and could somehow obtain the anticipation of the divine hour. We really need that hour to come quickly. We need to be anticipated. It must come now so that we have the courage to say, 
Oh, mother, we, your children, cannot take it anymore. We have confidence. The Lord gives us the certainty of Mary's victorious presence. Her presence here is not just that of an apparition from the other world as in Revelation. The woman clothed with the sun and crowned with stars. But here, the humble Mary is as present as she was in the humble house of Cana. When she obtained with the, she obtained the anticipation of God's hour. Because of our sins, we deserve the cruelest massacres, the most merciless executions. We have driven his son out of our schools, our squares, and our homes. We have driven him out of the hearts of so many men. Our generations have renewed the cry of old. We do not want this man to reign over us. Between Barabbas and Jesus, we chose Barabbas. Between the Lord of the universe and the evildoer, we chose Barabbas. But no hour is closer to the hour of resurrection than the hour of crucifixion. Barabbas triumphs, it is true, sitting on his throne. Jesus, on the other hand, is fixed to the cross in the flesh of so many martyrs, so many tortured, so many, de- so many expelled, and in the minds of so many oppressed and tormented souls. Never have so many Christian crosses been raised in this immense and atrocious garden of Nero that has become the whole world. Mary, mother of love and sorrow, mother of Bethlehem and Calvary, mother of Nazareth and Cana, intervene for us. Hasten the divine hour. The world needs the wine that comes from the vine that is Jesus himself, born of the virgin. I am the vine. See John chapter 15, verse 5. He says, I am the true vine. See John chapter 15, verse 1. It is the wine of this vine that we want. Let Mary say at Cana, they have no wine. Let her say it with the same power of intercession. If Jesus hesitates, if he refuses, let her triumph over his hesitations. As out of motherly piety, she triumphs over our unworthiness. May she be for us a mother full of pity, for him a mother full of authority. May she deign to hasten his hour, which is our hour. We cannot bear it any longer. O Mary, the human generation will perish unless you intervene. Speak for us, O silent one. Speak for us, O Mary. Signed, Alfredo Cardinal Ottoviani. So what did you think of that? I'm curious what you thought of that very long address by Cardinal Ottoviani. Again, I rarely do two educational videos on a weekend, on a Saturday, but I think this one was relevant. So let me know what you think about this, and if you think there are any signs of this happening in our struggle against modernism in our time, if and you, you see an increase in Marian devotion and Marian piety, and other things that are signs that the that Our Lady is active in our battle against the modernists for the heart and soul of the church and against the heresies that have corrupted the institutions of the church in our time. Let me know what you think of this in the comments, please. Like and subscribe if you haven't. It really does help. As is sharing these messages on social media. That helps a lot as well. As always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.